Hello, everyone, and welcome to the In Defense of Plants podcast, the official podcast of InDefenseofPlants.com. What's up? This is your host, Matt. Welcome to the show. How's everyone doing this week? I'm doing great because I have a fantastic episode for you today. Joining us is a personal idol of mine because her research is so amazing, Dr. Joan Edwards, and she studies, among other things, exploding flowers. Now, that seems pretty uh, extravagant, and it certainly is, but I don't want to steal any of her thunder. To hear her talk about her research and the, how she got to where she is today is absolutely fascinating and inspiring. So let's just jump right into it. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Joan Edwards. I hope you enjoy. All right, Dr. Joan Edwards, I am so excited to have you on the podcast. I've known about your work for a really long time, and I'm really excited to talk to you about it. But first, let's introduce yourself. Tell everyone a little bit about who you are and what it is you do. Okay, I am a botanist, and I'm proud to say I'm a botanist. Some people don't like to be called botanists. They, oh. they want to be evolutionary biologists. But I love just being a botanist because <laughs> I, I have loved plants for most of my life. I never knew that I could be a scientist or hmm. make new discoveries. And it wasn't until I actually spent a summer at the University of Michigan Biological Station um, because I had added botany very, very late as a major. So it was between my uh, sophomore and junior year. Hmm. And I needed to make up a lot of biology classes to finish the botany major. So I went to the uh, to bug camp, as they call it, <laughs> the tip of the mitt. Nice. And I took two classes. One was freshwater algae, and the other was limnology. And because I signed up so late, those were kind of the only two classes that were still open. Hmm. And it was an eight-week program. And about four weeks into the program, I realized that I just love doing field biology. I love <laughs> being out in the field. I love the amazing world, particularly in the world of algae. You look through the microscope and you see these gems, you know, little desmids and diatoms. Mm -hmm. And the diversity of things was just beyond anything I could imagine lived. And I just, I loved going into the field, collecting the water samples, bringing them back, looking at them, realizing not all species grew everywhere. They were oh. often specialized to bogs or to rivers or to lakes. And I fell in love with being a field biologist. And I thought, wow, if I can just do this my whole life, I think I'll be really happy. <laughs> I have to say it was built in part on when I was young, I always loved flowers. I was always hmm. drawn to flowers. Um, they mesmerized me. I, I just thought they were beautiful and amazing. And of course, there is a strong evolutionary reason for that because <laughs> flowers are designed to attract animals, mostly butterflies and birds and bees. But, you know, it turns out we're not that different from a butterfly <laughs> or a bird or a bee, the way our neurons are put together. That's awesome. And so they also attract us. And so I became a field biologist and I did a, a pretty circuitous route to get to pollination biology. Hmm. I started out being very interested in plant-animal interactions and um, did my thesis work at Isle Royal Wilderness National Park Ooh, in Lake Superior. Awesome. And I studied moose behavior, moose interactions with the plant world. And I spent three field seasons just following moose and watching what they ate 
<laughs> recording their diet in terms of the bites of all the plant species. Because I was a botanist, I knew the plants. I didn't really know that much about moose, though I have published a couple of papers on moose behavior. And I recorded their diet. I think I have the most detailed diet of moose that anyone ever has put together <laughs> because it's recorded in terms of every bite of every plant wow. species. Yeah, pr pretty, pretty amazing. But eventually I got to pollination biology. And part of the way I got to pollination biology was later in my career. And it was really through the discovery of this exploding flower. Ooh, so exciting. It is very exciting. That's a really awesome pathway to where you're at. Just loving nature, wanting to be outside. It didn't really, it Absolutely. sounds like necessarily matter what kind of system you inserted yourself in, as long as you were able to kind of get out there and try to understand the living world around you. And what better way to do that than to start with the plants? And I would argue that if, you know, at the risk of sounding corny here, if the adage sticks that you are what you eat, then by studying the moose diets as thoroughly as you did, I'd say you pretty much understand what a moose is at this point. <laughs> I hope so. I mean, I did get to the point that I could sort of anticipate what they were going to do, what they were going to eat, hmm. where they were going to go next. You know, you watch them so much, you become intimately associated with them and um, you can figure out where they're going to go and what they're going to do. One of the things I, I learned was how, I'll tell you a little bit about the moose work, a little sure. bit more about the moose work, because it's pretty interesting. Um, so I was trying to anticipate what impact they would have on the plants, and I was trying to anticipate what plants they would actually eat. So I researched ahead of time, and I learned that the best, most nutritious forage or leaves for moose to eat are young leaves. Young, mm. newly leafed out leaves are the highest in nutrients and the lowest in, you know, undigestible materials. <laughs> so before I went to Isle Royale, I, I um, hypothesized that moose would follow the leaf out from south to north. They'd start at the southern end of Isle Royale and they'd gradually move to the north, thinking plants, of course, follow hmm. a phenological pattern of, of leafing out. And um, to make a long story short, they do follow, most of them do follow the huh. leafing of the plants, but the dominant phenology is not from south to north, but from the top of the ridgetops down to the water edge, because it turns out Lake Superior is a giant icebox, <laughs> freezing. It's really, really cold. Yeah. So all of the plants along the edge of the shore and a little ways up from the shore are in cold microhabitats and they don't leaf <laughs> out a lot later. And the first plants to leaf out in the spring are on the ridgetops, which is sort of the opposite of what you would expect. Yeah. So then I thought, okay, they'll be on the ridgetops first and then they'll move down to the shoreline following the leafing of the plants. And that was true for a lot of them, except when I plotted all my moose out, I had some moose that were along the shoreline the whole time, hmm. and others that did follow the pattern. And it turns out that if you break them down into the different um, kinds of animals, the bulls and the solitary cows, the cows that didn't reproduce, would be on the ridgetops in the spring and move down to the shoreline later in the season. But the cows with calves stayed along the shoreline or even on the outer islands for the entire season. Huh. And this turns out to make a lot of sense because Isle Royale not only has moose, but it has wolves. Mm. 
And wolves, of course, um, are going to go for the vulnerable moose, which would be the calves. So my data showed, because I was watching moose very carefully, I could see that cows with calves would literally swim to an island just before giving birth. They'd get into that freezing cold Lake Superior water and get to an island and then give birth. And then they would stay on the island for a time proportional to the size of the island. So as long as they could, they'd stay on an island before they'd move on to another island. And that way they were avoiding predators on their calves, which is, it's pretty cool actually. Yeah. But the cost of that for them, of course, is that they are sacrificing a good diet. So the reproductive individuals in the population are indirectly, their diet is indirectly affected by the presence of a predator. Wow. Yeah. Isn't that such a cool That's pattern? amazing. <laughs> yeah. And it just, I, what I love about that research is you could really focus in on the moose's behavior, but at the end of the day, the real take home there is that A, microclimate matters, and Absolutely. B, the real things kind of dictating what's going on are plants and predators. So it's kind of the exactly. bookends of the trophic uh, web <laughs> that are really kind exactly. of shaping behavior. Yeah. And you had no idea. I mean, I had no clue before I went up there that this would happen. Wow. And so it's very, very cool to, to have, that, have that pattern. Yeah. And the other thing that came out of my research with respect to um, the impact of moose on the vegetation is... We think of moose as being browsers that taking leaves off of aspens or um, mm. alders. And in the winter, of course, they feed heavily on uh, evergreen needle plants, um, balsam fir in particular, which actually is a subpar diet. Mm. They kind of lose weight, weight on it. But um, the very first plants to leaf in the spring are their herbaceous plants, big leaf aster and uh, rosy twisted stalk. Um, and nice. they really, they graze on it. They really, those are, those are the first green things to come out of the ground. And they have a huge impact on these plants because when they eat them, then those plants have a lowered reproductive success. So I could show that with an experiment wow. I did on wild sarsaparilla, that if the moose chomp off the plant, the next year they don't reproduce, the shoots don't reproduce. So hmm. they have a big impact on the reproduction of the herbaceous layer in that habitat. That also is very cool. remarkable. And it had to feel so good to, as especially as a scientist in training, peel back those layers and get such interesting stories that really were unknown before. And that's what excites me about work like yours you know, as young scientists in training ourselves, we get to learn about these these sorts of experiments, you know, can be inspired by these. And you have to realize, like, there was a point where we had no idea. I mean, this is training for a lot of ecologists nowadays, but at the time, anyone's guess. <laughs> anyone's guess. And the thing for me is so unexpected. So I think you have to keep an open mind. Mm. When you look at the data, you make a hypothesis, it doesn't fit. And you go, <laughs> whoa, what is going on? And then you get a new idea and a new discovery. And, and that's what's so exciting. And, you know, of course, I never thought growing up, I mean, I'm in my 70s now, my early 70s, and still very excited about what I'm doing. <laughs> um, but, um, you know, way back then, I didn't have very many women as role models. Sure. And, you know, I had no clue I could be a scientist. Absolutely none. Hmm. I mean, or that I could discover something that was new to the world. And then, you know, it would happen. And then I'd think, well, I can't do this again. You know, how can I? <laughs> and then I would make another discovery. It was pretty exciting. 
Uh, that's wonderful to hear. Uh, I, I think even through that lens is is really inspiring. And again, your work has inspired so many more. So it is so nice to go to hear someone that didn't know this was even possible to someone who is influencing other scientists in their efforts to try to understand the living world. I say living world because that's the realm we're in, but your story could be replicated across all fields of science, I'm sure. Yeah, absolutely. And I think for me, um, as a field botanist, looking carefully at nature is really key. You never know (laughs) when you're going to see something that no one's explained before or no one's observed before. And particularly in the world of sort of natural history. I mean, I think some people think natural history's all been done. (laughs) No, we're not even close, right? (laughs) Um, Yeah, and there's so many things to to be discovered, just things that you might notice. And that has been a great pleasure of mine in life to to take students, because I take students in the field, and, you know, they see things that I don't see. Mm. We, we discover things together. It's, it's a really um, rewarding and enriching experience. It's, it's so wonderful to hear you say that, to have that passion ring true through your voice. It would be obvious if you were lying about that, and it's very obvious you are not. And to still be able to take people out and show them this and still be discovering new things. And it's it's something that I kind of came in with a bias early on in my education was that, yeah, we, we figured it out. At this point in time, there's no way someone hasn't seen this yet. But time and time again, I'm reminded of the importance of just going outside and taking the time to observe, which I yes. think a lot of times programs are robbing people of that uh, yeah. for the you know chasing grants or whatever it is. But like the amount of stuff we don't know about even common species, not exactly. even just the rare stuff is yeah. disproportionate to what we know. <laughs> I agree. And, and that same thing has happened to me in the world of pollination biology. Um, right. You know, you think you know everything and you don't. And and with pollination biology, it's even harder in some yeah. sense because events occur in fleeting instances <laughs> and some so fast you can't even see them yeah. with the naked eye. And so how can you really understand what's going on if you can't really see it? So you have to figure out tricks and ways to sort it out and, and figure it out. Right. And that's it's wild to think about even in the plant world because even the non-botanically inclined among us understand pollination on some level. You know, an insect fits it's a flower, pollen, that sort of stuff. But once again, I took for granted the fact that it should be the most understood system on the planet because we rely on it so heavily and it is so important for every ecosystem that relies you know, in which plants are the base. But it's the the reason I admire pollination biologists so much is just what you said there. It is not simple to study. (laughs) It's really hard, actually. And so what took you down that route? I mean, how do you go from, you know, studying herbivory, which is one really important realm of botany, plant, animal interactions to the reproductive side of things? I mean, that's a leap. And then how do you insert yourself into that realm when there's so many ways you can tackle that bigger umbrella? A lot lot of things. And really what, what led me into, I mean, I've always been interested in pollination, but never quite had a handle on how to get into it until one summer at the end of our field season, we were looking at flowers and we were all, I did my whole career actually, field career at Isle Royale National Park oh, so wow. I for the whole time. Huh. And uh, so I would take students there and uh, in part we go, we went there because my great grandfather 
owned an island that was part of Isle Royale in the turn of the last century. So he bought it in the really the beginning of the 20th century and built a cabin there. It's actually called Edwards Island. Oh. And um, then in 1940, of course, Isle Royale was made into a national park. And so we had to give it up, but they gave us a life lease so we hmm. could use that cabin as long as someone on the lease was still alive. And the only people on that lease were not my generation, but the generation ahead of me. So my dad was on the lease. And he luckily he lived to be 99. Oh, but, wow. but uh, so we, we established really a field research site there on Isle Royale, one of the outer islands of Isle Royale. And that's where I did all my moose work. And that's where I would take students every summer to work on uh, different different projects. And the wonderful thing about the camp that my great-grandfather put together was that it was all outside. We were the hmm. only camp that had an outdoor kitchen. So we had <laughs> we had a wood stove to cook on, but it was outside. Wow. And it meant that the only thing you really did in the cabin was to sleep. The rest hmm. of the time you were outside, and that meant you saw things, and it made a huge difference. So your moose would come through camp or gray jays or wow. saw what owls would fly in at night. <laughs> It was really magical yeah. that you had all these animals. And also Isle Royale, I consider a natural garden. It has more flowers per square inch than any almost any other place I've been. It's a very rich boreal flora that is just sparkles with flowers, twin huh. flowers and bunchberry dogwoods and bead lily, uh, you know, lots and lots and lots of flowers. So it was there for the asking, actually, to be studied. <laughs> they were right in front of my face. Yeah. And one day we were sitting around at breakfast, and one of my husband, who also did research up there, one of my husband's honor students, was making a sketchbook for his sister for her birthday, and he was sketching flowers, which I thought was just such Aww. a very sweet and lovely thing to <laughs> yeah. do. And he was sketching bunchberry dogwood, and I said, Malin, I said, you know, that's not one flower. I love to tell people that dogwoods are, you know, not, not really one flower, but they're lots of little tiny flowers surrounded by four white showy bracts. And so I was explaining to him the structure of the inflorescence. And one of my students, who actually should have known better, said, really? And I said, Sarah, I said, you should go look closely at a bunchberry dogwood. And so she stuck her nose down into the bunchberry dogwood. And she said, something went poof. <laughs> and then it was my turn to say, really? <laughs> and so then we took the flowers and we looked at them. We have a dissecting scope up there. We looked at them under the dissecting scope and we could see this just beautiful tiny flower, only about two millimeters across with four petals that are just held together by the tip. Like you'd take four corners of a handkerchief and okay. just and in between the petals were sticking out like elbows, stamens <laughs> that were bent in the bud. <laughs> and uh, one of the petals had a little trigger hair on it, which oh. is really pretty amazing. So if you just very gently took um, a pin and just pushed that trigger hair to the side, the whole flower just exploded open and pollen went up into the air. Whoa. And I had never seen this before. I mean, it was really astounding. So, you know, we were four days from closing camp because <laughs> it was the end of the season. And, oh, this is just, you know, this is too exciting. We tried to film it with, um, this was back in the early 2000s. We had mm -hmm. a, um, a Nikon camera, digital <laughs> camera that could do videos. But, you know, it, it wasn't very right. good. Yeah. 
<laughs> and so we decided we'd take a few plants home with us. We were driving back to Williamstown, Massachusetts, where I, I teach at Williams College. And so we carefully packed up a box of bunchberry dogwood flowers and we took them back to a campus. And I remembered that I had a colleague who had a camera that could, a high-speed camera that might be able to slow things down. So this is in the very early stages hmm. of, of high-speed cameras. And he wasn't there, but he had a student who kind of knew how to use the camera. So, you know, and, and the thing is, every little bump on the car coming back, it was a three-day car, car ride back, flowers would explode. <laughs> you know? So I think I had 12 flowers that hadn't exploded oh, by the time I got back to campus. And we also had to go across the border. Um, oh, boy. Go through Canada. And I told my husband, I said, don't tell them we have exploding flowers in the back. <laughs> and of course, the entire car burst out laughing. And so we got pulled over oh, to the geez. side and we got checked. But they didn't recognize them as exploding flowers. Well, that's so, good, at least. Okay. Um, but eventually, we got a picture at 1,000 frames per second wow. of this exploding plant. And the problem was, is it was really, really blurry. And I decided I was... I wasn't using the camera properly because mm. how can something go faster than a thousand frames per second, particularly a plant? So uh, there was a physicist who had known, knew how to use the camera who ended up collaborating with me on huh. high exploding plants. And he went by and we had one flower left. We did another film. He said, Joan, you're using the camera correctly. The flower is too fast for wow. a thousand. Isn't that incredible? That's wild. Really, really amazing. So then we looked to see if we could get a faster camera and we didn't have any flowers left by then, but um, it turned out that there were cameras that could go quite a bit faster up to a hundred thousand frames per second. And I remember telling my colleague this and he said, Oh, Joan, don't believe everything you read see on the internet, you know? <laughs> um, but so we planned for the net, we had to wait a whole nother field season, but the next field season, we were able to rent a high speed camera that could go fast. And we filmed the flower at 10,000 frames per second. And that was enough to slow it down that oh. it needed the, the biomechanics of the flower. And then the whole question became, why does it have exploding flowers? Yeah. It's a lot of work to go to make an exploding flower. And that design, it's a very complicated design. You have to hold the stamens down the stamens have to be hinged and not only are they hinged, but the anther is connected to the stamen, the filament loosely. They're mm. pectins that act on that hinge and make it like a floppy um, anther sac. <laughs> it turns out to be really important because then it means instead of having a fixed catapult, you have what's called a hinged catapult, which is a trebuchet, Ooh. which turns out can flip. If you think of your wrist as not only if you have it stiff and you move it up, it, it just, your whole arm just goes up. But if you have a floppy wrist, you can get an extra flip of your hand at the end. And that turns out to be really critical in making the pollen go upwards. Wow. So that actually launched my whole pollination career because then I developed a research program where I asked for fast plants, how do they do it? And then from an evolutionary standpoint, why do they do it? Wow. Why do they explode fast? Although then I started to look more broadly at other systems that weren't necessarily fast flowers. So 
we looked at the exploding flowers from the standpoint of visitors. So if you look, if you look at these flowers closely, you can see that they mature, they have maybe 30 tiny flowers surrounded by white showy bracts, just like you, you imagine what a dogwood inflorescence looks like. And they mature a few flowers every day. So, you know, they're, the bloom for every inflorescence is, is over a, a period of time. Hmm. And when we started to look to see who visited them in the field, we could see there were a lot of visitors, hmm. lots and lots of different insects, from ants. Ants were really, really common visitors to think large uh, surfed flies, beautiful um, hoverflies. Okay. But there were beetles. There were musket flies that would come in, hmm. califorid flies, tachinid flies, lots of different kinds of flies would come into these systems. And I had to learn flies. <laughs> Sounds like I it. Had to learn insects. I know. <laughs> that was a little bit daunting. A I'm little. still not that good at it, but I've I've learned a, I've learned quite a few of them. I'm sure and, there are people listening right now that you just said I didn't realize there were that many names of flies and you've just scratched the surface. So you you're ahead of the game. So we finally figured out sort of the bottom line on these. The broad brush view is that um it takes a certain amount of force to explode the flower open. Mm. And so, and we did experiments in the field to show that if you have large visitors to your flower, you set more seed than if you have small visitors to the flower. So small visitors are sort of moochers. They're coming into the system and they're taking pollen and nectar that's residual after the large insects have opened the flowers. So they're they're moochers in the system. And there are Mm. lots of moochers, like ants are maybe the most common (laughs) visitor to these flowers, but they're not doing the flower any good. Yeah. But the large insects come in, they go bam, bam, bam. When they land on the flower, they explode it. The bottom of their bodies is just coated with pollen. All of these insects are voracious pollen eaters too, but they don't clean. They don't eat the pollen off their bodies between every flower visit. So some of that pollen gets transported to the next flower. Wow. Yeah. So in essence, this really was spurred on or at least selected for by the fact that what's visiting wants to eat that pollen. So if the flower, and I'm anthropomorphizing here, can just spray that pollen all over it instead of just Mm -hmm. offering it up stationarily, then it's going to get more done with its gametes. Absolutely. Oh, man. (laughs) That is wild. It reduces reduces pollinivory, which is huge because if you look at some of these beetles, we took some beetles and then we looked at their frass, their droppings. Yeah. And they look like miniature uh, Cheetos, you know, those, you know, <laughs> but they're just chock full of pollen that's been chewed to bits. Wow. It's solid pollen. I mean, they're voracious eaters of pollen and the surfed flies too. They just pack it in. Their guts are just full of pollen. So um, the plant has to get around it in some way. So that's right. If you, if you throw the food at them, they have a hard time eating it. <laughs> It's very, very cool. Oh, I absolutely love that. And just to have started with this casual observation, someone drawing, someone getting down a little bit closer to take a look, which birthed, I mean, really two levels of inquiry here because you have the physics of it, of how do these mechanisms work? How do you do that? And then the evolutionary one. But to take a step to more of the physical aspects of these mechanisms, I mean, trigger hairs, 
the 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 hinges on these filaments and anthers the fact that the anthers can move but then pollen consistency like that's a new realm for me even is understanding how much pollen consistency can affect things and like all of that in tandem over evolutionary time just to keep (laughs) because they know what's coming to the flowers generally wants to eat the things they desperately need to move to other flowers and then to top it all off the system is pretty cool in that if there are no visitors to the flowers they explode on their own and they they throw their pollen to the wind and if you look at the pollen from bunchberry dogwood it's much smaller than other kinds of uh, cornice pollen hmm. it's much smaller it's more in the wind pollination realm whoa and of course you know uh bunchberry dogwood also grows in these large expanses big areas that would fill a room hmm. so you know the chances of it landing somewhere it's possible and it can travel long distances because it's so small and so light so it has wind as a backup it's it's really a very clever flower that has developed all these different tricks to get its genes into the next generation. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> everything you just said is is proof. Someone isn't convinced pollination is extremely complex and complicated. Uh, I don't know what they're doing listening right now, but <laughs> it's never even as straightforward as, okay, there's a pollination mechanism. That's the only way it works. I mean, there yeah. the fact that chance can play a role in this and that there's a backup strategy in the event that, you know, weather just keeps things from visiting, vice whatever. I mean, just the fact that they can reproduce in other ways. And then you add the fact that if all else fails, vegetative reproduction also works. I mean, this is a plant that's primed to take advantage of whatever comes its way. Exactly. And it's selecting who carries its pollen by weight, not by taxa. So it's, it's, it also, you know, we have clocked now, I can't remember how many, but well (laughs) over a hundred different species that visit this plant. So you know, if you have patchiness in your pollinator fauna, which now I'm discovering is a real phenomenon huh. in pollination systems, you can use whomever's in your neighborhood to carry your pollen. You don't have to rely on a particular taxa being present to carry your pollen to the next flower. Huh. And it turns out that pollinator neighborhoods are really, really patchy. And th- this is the newest area of research that I'm I'm looking at is um, how heterogeneous pollinator communities are, and how plants I think have actually responded to that by being very flexible in who they mm. care have as couriers of their pollen. So they, I, I call it a neighborhood pollination model. <laughs> they they use whomever's in the neighborhood who's <laughs> present who can do the job. They're happy to have them do it. And so going back to what you said about patchiness, now you just mean in terms of like who's around at any given time and what abundances those pollinators potentially are at. And and I'm guessing that also lends to the fact that you're in a boreal forest where the weather during the flowering season can be really unpredictable. So that probably adds another layer of of patchiness or or heterogeneity. The seasonality, different years, um, different areas, weather for sure. But you know, what spurred me with the bunchberry dog was I really wanted to be a bunchberry dogwood. <laughs> I wanted to sit there and I wanted to record everything that landed on my face. <laughs> and so I really searched, starting about 2012, I started to search for a way to look for, to get a near complete record of visitors to hmm. flowers. 
And this has transformed how I see pollination systems. Really? So, yeah. So I got these little cameras and they've gotten better now. These cameras now can take a picture every three seconds. Wow. And you get hundreds of hours of video. <laughs> My students aren't so happy about, but they get into it. <laughs> it's observing in a different way. <laughs> observing in a different way. And we literally set the cameras to record from dawn to dusk wow. for the entire period of bloom. Huh. Because, you know, who's to say if, you know, species A visits on day one and then species A is missing from another patch on day one, but you don't know if maybe species A went to the second patch the next day. Right. You don't know. But if you have complete records of visitors to flowers, then you really know who's been there and you can really measure heterogeneity. And the first test of this system, we looked at bunchberry dogwood flowers at four different locations. So we had four cameras and um, they were no more than 300 meters apart. So the closest they were, were three football fields. It's not that far apart. (laughs) Yeah. And we got huge heterogeneity. There was a lot of uniqueness per site and not that much overlap. It was really astounding. And so I am really looking at pollination systems quite differently than I, than I used to just because of heterogeneity. So, you know, if you have a garden and your neighbor two blocks away has a garden, you could have different insects wow. and you could be preserving different pollinators. So I always tell people every garden counts. Yeah, I mean, that is the best evidence for that, I think, in terms of if people care about pollinators, here you go. It's not just, well, you know, what is one person? One yard can make a huge difference in that context. One yard can make a huge difference because you can be preserving completely different species than your neighbor down the road. And this is held now, we've we've done maybe close to 30 different species that we film now. Mm. And... um, we're getting that same pattern. Oh boy. Oftentimes they're key pollinators, but oftentimes there are always unique ones at any one site. So it's pretty cool. Yeah. I mean, this can radically adjust the way we look at an ecosystem, uh, especially on scales that, like you said, a, a couple football fields is not that much in the context of an entire landscape. And so, you know, what factors then go into influence this? How much can it change given what the neighboring landscape looks like or what people have done in that area? Yeah, this is a frontier and then some. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm really pretty amazed that you get this heter- spatial heterogeneity and temporal heterogeneity both. Right. And I think it also means that flowers because they're fixed in space really have to have, you know, they have to have backups in their system. Yeah. Bunchberry dogwood has it in spades, but I think most flowers also have backups. You know, they can't be too wedded to one carrier of their pollen yeah and i mean (laughs) people try to draw all these connections between human or or animals at least but mostly humans and plants but when you hear things like this i mean pollination is already kind of weird from a reproductive standpoint but then having multiple ways of doing it on top of that which results in kind of different outcomes a lot of the time is just you know, one of my friends is, is working on an, a manuscript about Darwin and some of his uh, at-home studies in pollination. And just what he's been able to observe in his own backyard just goes to show you how varied plants can be from like, okay, did this one self versus this one got outcrossed? And then the seed set was entirely different. I mean, the implications downstream of all of this 
even Absolutely. beyond looking at who's visiting is, ah, oh, you gave me goosebumps. <laughs> no, it's very, very cool. And the other thing that, that has come from my research are the, the importance of flies. Mm. Flies are really, really important. People don't realize how important flies are. Even, you know, things that look like your musket flies, like a house fly. <laughs> right. look just like a house fly. You think, oh, they're not very important. They're hugely important visitors to our flowers, to our spring ephemeral flowers. I mean, solitary bees are too, and sure. bumblebees are, and all of those are. But I think we overlook flies. We, When we talk about pollination, at least the, the lay public, I think, tends to focus on bees. Yeah. And um, I just want to put a shout out there for the flies. They <laughs> are really cool. Yeah. And, and I mean, I even beyond overlooking them, most people are just disgusted by them because we associate them with, with grossness. But yeah, I mean, when I talk to people that study dipteran, the diversity there blows my mind. And then just, you have to start asking these questions as to what is at the root of all of that. There's a reason all of these organisms are distinct organisms, right? And I can't help but think that their feeding guild, which oftentimes is flowers, plays a big part in all of that. And so how does that feedback then influence the other side of this equation, the the, the flies themselves? Yes, exactly. Yeah, no, they're, they're really in abundant. And I think every year I find new fly species that I haven't seen before. I mean, they're, they're really, really diverse. Yeah. And some of them are just stunningly beautiful too, mm-hmm. particularly the hoverflies. But um even, I don't know, even the house flies I find beautiful. Yeah. The I mean, I get a kick out of them because I've got, I grow like stapeliads, the carrion flowers from Africa and oh, they yeah. bloom and, and here are an entirely different suite of species of flies that are still tricked by something from an entirely different continent. And, and if you have enough of them around, they will pollinate. That's just, it's so cool. That's great. That's great. <laughs> and so, in the context of cornice, how unique is this adaptation with exploding flowers? Is bunchberry the only one that does this, or is this something other cornice have stumbled onto, I guess, in an evolutionary There's sense? There's one other species of cornice that does this. Um, so uh, there's cornice canadensis. Actually, it's been given a new name. Yeah, we'll just, it's okay. We'll call it cornice. cornice for today. Safe yeah. space here for cornice. <laughs> So there's the Swedish Cornell too that okay. is that is very similar. The flowers are just a slightly different color, but it does exactly the same thing. Wow. Um, so amazingly, the the world you know in the northern hemisphere, no one's ever too far from a cornice plant. You know, they're <laughs> on true. all the mountains going down the Appalachians. They're in the Western Mountains too. They're all through, of course, the boreal forest all across Canada. They go over into Finland, Norway, all the Scandinavian countries have, that's the Swedish Cornell is there. Okay. So, you know, everyone can actually see them. They can go out into the field if they go in the right time and they can see these flowers in action. They're very tiny and mm-hmm. hand lens kind of helps, but they're pretty spectacular. Yeah. Tiny botany is always good for people. You know, I, I encourage like, even if you don't know what you're looking at, get a hand lens and go look because the micro yes. world, the complexity you're going to find is going to make you have to sit down and think for a little bit about our importance as large bipedal naked apes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, hand lenses are really great. It's the first thing I hand out in my field box. Oh, class. nice. Everybody gets a hand lens. What a treat. You're required to have a hand lens. <laughs> that's awesome. So that's, that's pretty cool. Wow. There are other exploding flowers. Um, yeah. 
you know, this is the trigger flower in Australia. They're epilobium that have, um, hmm. you know, they flip their styles up, I think. Their styles flip yeah, up. Yeah, yeah. And then the other one that's been filmed a lot is the mulberry flower. I did not know that. And also also um, stinging nettles. Ooh. So both the mulberry and the stinging nettles have, their male flowers have uh, stamens that are curled in bud and they flip out. Hmm. And it's like sowing seed. This is all for wind pollination. I don't think it has oh. anything to do with insect pollination. But they explode open and they throw their pollen to the wind. Um, so that's that's to enhance wind pollination in those cases. I mean, that to me is pretty wild, too, when you consider sort of the habitat context of a lot of nettles. They're not these giant canopy species that have their propagule stuff way out in where the breeze is. I mean, this is stuff that's oh. often in a less circulatory environment. So, yeah, exactly. kinda, in that context makes sense. You'd want to get it as far away from you as possible. Exactly. They're wow. pretty cool. So there are other other things that explode. There's certainly a lot of exploding fruits. Right. Maybe more exploding fruits than flowers. The flowers are a little rarer, I think. Um, but there are, yeah. And there are tropical ones that tropical flowers that explode. Yeah, the, the tropics have done so many weird things. I remember seeing a video of someone said, Oh, my weird house plant is smoking. And it was, I think it's a relative of the nettle. And it was just like poof, 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 oh, poof, 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 poof. Very cool. Yeah, it was so neat. Cool. Very cool. Yeah. So, you know, opening up this idea of the heterogeneity and the different strategies, you mentioned you're kind of including some other plants into this mix, at least a handful of other species. I mean, it seems like stories similar to this, even if the mechanisms are different, can each one is its own novel, if not volumes of novels. Does it intimidate you as a scientist moving into an unknown? I mean, I know it's exciting, but to, to, realize how many species are out there <laughs> has yeah. to kind of make you go like, Oh, wow. We to me, are. It's an infinite palette, right? You have, there's never an end. There's always something more to study. And I didn't know that when I started out, <laughs> um, you know, I'm just going to hit the tip of the iceberg in my lifetime, but um, there, there are generations of scientists ahead that, that have pollination biology to look forward to. I, I think it's very exciting. And, and, you know, flowers, of course, there's so many flowering plants, um, yeah. species, and each one needs to be worked out. Their story needs to be worked out. And then you have to figure out how they interact with each other. And, you know, do they share pollinators how, or compete for pollinators? Hmm. Um, they help each other or not, you know? Uh, the, the, the other piece that we're looking at, um, so I, I like looking at things in different ways. So speeding things up, slowing things down. Mm. So the time lapse is speeding things up when I do time lapse photography to get all the visitors. Um, and the high speed camera, of course, is slowing things down. And we've discovered that you can take your iPhone and you can, um, it can go now, I think 1080 frames per second. It can go, wow. the new iPhones can go pretty fast. Huh. And it slows down insects enough that you can tell how they're handling the flower. And mm. we just got into this last summer. We just go, go with an iPhone and a macro lens on your iPhone. And you can go really close to a flower and visiting insect. And if you're very careful, you don't scare it away. <laughs> it's hard, but you can do it. I had one student who was just, I don't know. He was magic. I don't know. I think he hypnotized the insects. Yeah. But he could get down and you get really clear, high definition, slow-mo video of wow. insects and flowers. And 
I'm fascinated by how they handle the flowers. So they use their hand, their feet, and they pull a stamen towards them that's full of pollen, and they eat it like they're eating a ice cream cone. <laughs> I mean, it's really amazing. Um, they use their tongue. The, the flies have a tongue that's often forked, or, um, like two sponges. It mm. flips out, and it blots the stamen and pulls up the pollen. I mean, just the intricacy and the delicacy with which an insect interacts with the flower is amazing. And we have now these tools that, you know, 20 years ago we didn't have. Yeah. Even. So, you know, you just your iPhone can, right. can slow down an insect enough that you can discern its behavior and how it's interacting with that flower. And is it making the right contacts mm. to carry the pollen uh, from one plant to the next? All of that you can figure out just through careful observation and slowing down what you're seeing. And to me, that is really exciting. I'm mesmerized by hmm. it. I haven't put it together in a paper yet, but I'm, I'm, it's, there's one there sort of happening. <laughs> very awesome. interested. Yeah. I mean, I very much look forward to that whenever it is, is hatched. But thinking about the, the, what you just said there in the context of are they handling it properly? And going back to what you'd mentioned earlier, just because something is visiting a flower, we think, yeah. oh, look at that. It's a pollinator. Not always the case. And in fact, oftentimes, I'm sure kleptomania or, yeah. or, or stealing is, is probably a very common theme in this, very, very this research. Very, very common. I think moochers in the system are really like ants, for example. Yeah. I can't tell you how many ants I've looked at to see if they have any pollen at all on their body. Nothing. <laughs> they don't carry anything. <laughs> And it really makes me angry. <laughs> I mean, in the time I, and I have only looked cursory searches of the literature, but yeah. you know, I look for casual science stuff. I can think of two examples off the top of my head where ants might even be involved in any meaningful way in pollination. Yeah. I mean, most of the stuff I read is like, no, they're actually the antithesis of pollination. So. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> now there may, maybe we'll find something. I think there are a couple of papers where they, where they report ant pollination, but it's pretty, pretty rare. And I haven't seen it yet, but maybe there's some unexpected indirect effect, right? Right. right. Like a bird eats the ants off the flowers and the bird carries the pollen, but <laughs> I haven't seen that documented yet, but maybe. But again, I'm, I'm looking out for it because it happens so often. Right. And the infinite complexity just in the, the, the chunk you have been able to carve off in your research career just goes to show you that we can't rule anything out. And to another exactly. reiteration from what you said earlier, don't get attached to hypotheses, have them, but be ready for them to be crumbled in front of your eyes exactly. with, with a few good experiments. And have a new way to look at the world. Yeah. And a newfound appreciation. I mean, at the end of the day, at least you're coming away. If the data don't amount to much, you have amazing videos of an intricate relationship between two organisms that Absolutely. most people do not get to see, let alone you exactly. know, film. So that in and of itself is very precious. Yeah, no, it's, it's very cool. Wonderful. Well, with that in mind, if people want to keep a pulse on the research coming out of your lab and, and look forward to, you know, what's coming out of this new line of, of, of research, where do you recommend they go looking? And I will add links, of course, so don't worry about the exact uh, address, okay. but just where can people go searching? Yeah. Well, I guess just, you know, I don't really have a good website. The Williams College, I have a Williams College uh, website that has some stuff on it, at least. So that's a link. 
I should post some of the videos that I have, but, you know, looking, I, I, my whole CV is listed on, on my website, I think with links to some of my papers at least. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. Your Williams College one will get plenty enough uh, to get people started. But Dr. Edwards, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us, but thank you so much for being curious and following that curiosity into an amazing research career. You are truly an inspiration to countless scientists. I mean, I, I, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to talk with us and for just doing what you love. Thank you so much. I do love what I, what I'm doing and I hope other people benefit from looking at nature carefully and closely. It not only leads to scientific discovery, but it is really good for your mental health and your well-being <laughs> and the world. And we could all use that these days. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Well, again, thank you very much. Uh, hang in there, stay healthy, and, and happy botanizing. Thank you. You too. Thank you. Keep doing what you're doing. It's I, wonderful. I'll do it as long as I can. <laughs> very good. Cheers. All right. How cool was that? Stay curious, my friends. Get outside. Observe nature. You never know what you're going to find. And who knows? It could create an entire career for you. We still have so much to learn about plants and especially the way they interact with other organisms like pollinators. It's never simple. It's never straightforward. It's infinitely complex. And that, to me, is so exciting. But that is it for this week. Thank you all for listening. If you want to support the show, consider signing up to be a patron over at patreon.com slash plants. I could not be doing this without my patrons, and you get kickbacks in the process, which include stickers and access to mini bonus episodes. Speaking of patrons, I do have a shout out to the latest producers on this podcast. A big thank you goes out to Carlos and Christy. Both of them signed up at the producer credit level, so they're getting all of our kickbacks, which includes this wonderful resume-building producer credit. Thank you to them, and of course, thank you to every patron that supports the show each and every month. But yeah, I'm going to sign off. Make sure you check the show notes for this episode as well as all other episodes. That's where you can get all of the relevant links to what we talk about in each episode. Just head over to indefensiveplants.com slash podcast to find those. But otherwise, hang in there, stay healthy, and get outside if you can. This is your host, Matt, signing out. Adios, everyone.